Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study. Hi, I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's my joy to be with you once again. Thanks for taking time to join me. Today is Wednesday, July 5th. We're continuing in our study of 1 Timothy, and today we're going to be studying 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. And I want to just say right up front, there is a lot of information here today. This study is going to be a little bit longer than usual, and we're going to be tackling some really, really difficult topics. But we're going to get through it. We're going to be together when we get there at the end, and it's going to be amazing. We're going to talk about instructions for worship, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. I'll get to it in just a minute, but join me in a word of prayer as we begin. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing gift of your word. Thank you that sometimes when we're studying, it can be really challenging. Lord, that's the day-to-day. We've got some topics you're going to share with us today that are really, really challenging, and there's lots of opinions out there. Help us to rightfully discern your word today. Teach us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. All right, open those Bible or Bible apps to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 to 15. And let's find out what the Apostle Paul has to say. Here we go. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. For there is one God, one mediator, who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Wow, that's amazing. See what I mean? There's so much in this today. Well, let's look at these first eight verses here because Paul begins with guidelines for prayer. So let's take a look at that. Verse one again says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Our opening question is this. To open this second chapter, Paul urges Timothy to pray. Who is Timothy to pray for, and what should the focus of his prayer be? Paul's first order of business is prayer. He uses all four main Greek words for prayer here to emphasize his point. Deesius, prosukas, and tuexis, and eucharistias are translated into English as supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Each word is distinct in the original Greek language, but those differences are not necessarily the point of Paul's statement. The point is the scope of the prayers, that we can come to God with requests, asking for God's help and giving thanks. According to Paul, these prayers need to be offered for all people. The Greek word anthropon is used here, which includes all humankind, both men and women. A common application for this verse urges prayer for government leaders. 
but Paul's purpose was most likely to broaden the possibilities for prayer rather than narrowing them. Paul's example may well have caused Timothy to think of the very persons with whom he has a conflict, and that was the false teachers there in the church in Ephesus. Both kings and those in authority were enemies of the early church. False teachers were people in authority who were promoting error and creating controversies in the Ephesian church. Yet Paul urged Timothy to pray for everyone, including his opponents. In situations of personal conflict, one of the ways to test our objectivity is whether or not we can honestly pray for those with whom we disagree. Jesus was quite clear when he said in Matthew 5.44, Pray for those who persecute you. Amen. Verse 2 reads, Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that you can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Here's the question. What did Paul tell Timothy to pray for kings and all who were in authority, and what was the purpose behind his command to pray? This is a remarkable command from Paul, considering that Nero, that notoriously cruel ruler, was the current emperor. When Paul wrote this letter, persecution was a growing threat to believers. Later, when Nero needed a scapegoat for the great fire that destroyed much of Rome in AD 64, he blamed the Roman Christians so to take the focus off himself. Well, that triggered severe persecution throughout the Roman Empire. Not only were Christians denied certain privileges in society, some were even publicly butchered, burned, or fed to lions. But believers were taught to support the government and those in authority not rebel against it. Paul didn't explain what to pray, but his list in the previous verse, verse 1, was broad enough to include whatever prayer might be appropriate for the situation. He also gave the purpose behind his command to pray. God sets up and removes all rulers. He is ultimately in control. Praying for the salvation of the rulers in Rome and for the return of the non-interfering policy against Christians would help restore the peaceful and quiet lives the Christians had enjoyed prior to the persecution. Even in nations where Christians do not face persecution, they still need to be constantly praying for their leaders. Every day, decisions are made in the halls of government that shape the policies, the future, even the morality of the nation. Constant prayer can be a mighty weapon against Satan's domination so believers can continue with their work of spreading the gospel in godliness and dignity. Godliness means true reverence and religious devotion that leads to exemplary conduct. Dignity means serious purpose and moral earnestness. These descriptive words do not imply private spiritual living. Instead, they convey a public faith consistent with God's purpose to achieve the salvation of persons and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. Absolutely. Next up, let's look at verses 3 and 4 together. They say this, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. Here's the question. What does Paul say is good and pleases God our Savior, and what is the desired end result? It may be difficult to pray for the salvation of civil leaders, but these prayers are good and please God who alone is Savior. The immediate context for Timothy included the conflict within the church with the false teachers, but even in this confrontation, the goal was to bring about their salvation. The recent mention of Hymenaeus and Alexander, last week we talked about them, illustrates the importance of redemptive discipline. While these men had been turned over to Satan, as the verse said, and were therefore outside the church, the door of repentance still would have been open to them. In the meantime, they were among the subjects for prayer by the gathered church. The fact that God wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth does not mean that all are going to be saved. The Bible affirms that many people reject Christ, but God's desire is that all people will be saved 
and he has provided in Christ the means to salvation. Next up, verses 5 and 6. Let's look at them. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. The question is, these verses cite three foundational truths of the gospel. What are they and what do they mean? The first foundational truth, I'm sure it just jumped right out at you. It's this, there's only one God. Judaism and Christianity shared the common belief that there is only one God, in direct opposition to the Greek and Roman gods and to the polytheism, that is the belief and worship of more than one God, of the surrounding nations. The foundation for this teaching is Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9 and also 1 Corinthians 8 4. The second foundational truth is there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Muslims also believe that there's only one God, but they differ in how he makes himself known. For the Muslims, God is Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. The Jews believe in one God, yet still await their Messiah. They believe in Moses as this mediator. Some of the Jews in Ephesus, as well as the Gnostics, may have regarded angels as mediators. The Romans were praising Caesar as their God. The Christian understands that Jesus Christ is our mediator because he is God. And the third foundational truth is, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. God is holy, sinless, and morally perfect. By nature, people are sinners. A holy God cannot embrace sinners any more than light can embrace darkness. For hundreds of years, the Jews sacrificed animals to God in order to maintain a right relationship with him. The sacrifice has reminded them that sin has consequences and that only spilled blood would be enough to cover the people's sins. Yet even that wasn't God's complete plan, for at just the right time, it says, he sent his son to become the final sacrifice to pay for the sins of all people, past, present, and future, with his own blood. Christians can respect other beliefs and religions, but we must hold firmly to those beliefs stated above without the slightest change. Although Christianity may appear narrow or intolerant, it is willing to embrace everyone who believes. There's only one God. There's only one mediator. And that mediator gave himself as a ransom. He paid the price. There's nothing more to do except believe. The gospel invitation to believe is centered in Jesus Christ. Believing in something or someone other than Jesus may be faith, but it is not the Christian faith. Next up, verse 7. It says, and I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. Here's the question. What was Paul's point in making this statement? Paul had been chosen a preacher. He was also an apostle. He operated with a sense of divine commission. He had been given the special privilege of teaching the Gentiles about faith and truth. This was the absolute truth, a point made not for Timothy's sake, but for the church in Ephesus. Next up, verse 8, it says, In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. Here's the question. Continuing with the theme of prayer started in verse 1, Paul now turns to prayer in the context of worship. What is he saying? Just as God desires all people to be saved, Paul desires that in every place of worship, I want men to pray. Do you see that in that verse? Men, as in males, are specified here by Paul using the Greek word andros. 
To pray with holy hands lifted up to God may appear somewhat unusual, but it was, in fact, the accepted way of praying among Jews and the earliest Christians. In Old Testament times, prayers were made with the face pointed toward heaven and palms turned upward and hands outstretched. This conveyed supplication and longing for God's blessing. Quite often, hands were used symbolically to show the humble attitude of the person praying. But these men who prayed needed holy hands, meaning they had to be clean before God. In Timothy's context, the outward forms of prayer needed to be authenticated by the absence of anger and controversy. Paul's concern indicates that the spiritual life of the Ephesian church was being undermined by ineffective prayers and divisive teaching. If individuals should be free from anger and quarreling while they prayed, how much more should those who offered prayer on behalf of others? I want to make clear at this point that this does not imply that women are not to pray, as the next verse will include them, in fact, by using the Greek word for likewise. Most likely, this problem of women leading in prayer and teaching applied specifically to the Corinthian and Ephesian situations. In these churches, recently converted and emancipated women tended to interrupt the service with improper questions or remarks. Paul urged them to defer to the men, but he was not generally refusing to let women participate in public prayer. Now Paul moves on to verses 9 to 15 to what appear to be rigid restrictions placed on women within the church. Folks, there's a lot of opinions out there. There's a lot of commentary that's been written on these verses. Let's just try to see what Paul has to say here, okay? Here we go, starting with verse 9. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Here's the question. As the men were to show their right attitudes with holy hands, so the women in the Ephesian church were to show their holy attitudes in what way? Paul said that women should show their holy attitudes by being modest in their appearance. Paul emphasized that their internal character was far more important than their outward adornment. Women's standards for dress were to be characterized by decent and appropriate clothing. Paul's appeal here was to good taste and good sense within the culture. Women believers were to dress their behavior in a manner that complemented rather than clashed with their character. Women who worshipped in the Christian church should not be given to showy, over-the-top, tasteless attire. Neither was seductive or sexually suggestive clothing appropriate. They were not to detract from the worship by drawing attention to themselves. So the point was that the Christian women in Ephesus should be more focused on who they were and not what they wore. To understand these instructions, we've got to look at them in light of the whole Bible. Jesus set women free. He treated them as human beings. He recognized and responded to their needs as human needs. He taught women and included them as his followers. He proved himself to be their savior too. At the time of Christ, the accepted view of women was that they were property, not people, not a person. Jesus personally shattered that conception. The gospel offered to women the gift of personhood. They were worthy of salvation. We should read Paul's instructions to the Christian women in Ephesus with regard to the immediate and larger contexts before we really apply them. The immediate context was the church in Ephesus. They were suffering from the effect of false teaching who used women as their primary targets. These women were also affected by their personal experiences within Ephesian culture. They would have struggled as much with cultural conditioning as we do. The larger context includes what Paul taught elsewhere about the role and place of women in the church. One key statement occurs in Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he said in Galatians 3, verse 28, 
there is no longer male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I want you to also note, if you have a moment, go back and look at Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Women were not to be singled out, nor should these instructions be binding outside of the church. Modesty and self-restraint are for everyone at all times, but these specific prohibitions apply to the church in Ephesus. Possibly some Christian women in the Ephesian church were trying to get respect by looking beautiful rather than becoming Christ-like in character. Some may have thought that they could win unbelieving husbands to Christ through their appearance. In addition, Paul may have been referring to particular styles in Ephesus that were associated with prostitutes in the local temples. Artemis, also called Diana, was the goddess of Ephesus. Considered the goddess of fertility, she was represented by a carved figure with many breasts. The large statue of her, the rock for which was said to have come from heaven, Acts 19.35, was in the great temple at Ephesus. That temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The festival of Artemis involved wild orgies and carousing. Obviously, Christian women should not look like or even copy the styles of the prostitutes in the temple of Artemis. While there's nothing wrong with Christian women wanting to look nice, each woman must examine her own motives. Today's world places great emphasis on beauty. Christian women, while they can dress nicely and take care of their appearance, must be at the same time not letting their appearance become all-encompassing so that they enhance their appearance simply for sex appeal or attention-getting. Next up, verse 10, another challenging verse. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. The question is, what does this verse say about a woman's beauty and how is it to be displayed? Now, we did talk about that in the previous answer, but there's more here. Paul's preference here is that instead of putting energy and anxiety into things like clothes and jewelry, the women of the church should focus their attention on the good things that they do. Hebrews 11 includes women in the list of faithful followers of God, such as Sarah, the mother of Moses, and Rahab. The books of Ruth and Esther in the Old Testament also prominently feature the influential role of godly women. Others, such as Hannah, are often applauded for their godly lives. In the New Testament, both Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were also highlighted as godly women. In addition, many of the early followers of Jesus were women, including those who first saw him resurrected. Paul would later mention widows known for good works and encourage the rich, including women, to be rich in good works. Next up, verse 11, it says women should learn quietly and submissively. This verse can be easily taken out of context. The question is, what do you think is the proper context in which Paul writes this? First of all, context is crucial for understanding any passage of Scripture. This is especially true when the verse taken out of context is easily misunderstood. This verse is especially prone to misinterpretation and controversy, so it needs to be carefully understood and carefully interpreted. In first century Jewish culture, women were not allowed to study. Jews and Gentiles regarded it disgraceful for women to discuss issues with men in public. The Jews were stricter, not even allowing women to teach the male children past age five. In Greek philosophy, Plato granted women equality with men. Aristotle, however, severely limited their activities in his view, and that was more widely accepted. When Paul said that women could learn, he was affirming their recognition as teachable members of the church. Christian women were given equal rights with men when it came to studying the Holy Scriptures. This was an amazing freedom for many of the Jewish and Gentile women who had become Christians. 
The truly controversial part of this verse has served as the basis for much debate among Christians. From the context of the Greek language, Paul's prior comments, and the culture of the time, it's clear Paul does not mean that women are to remain silent, meaning soundless, as some older translations would suggest. The same root Greek word, hesukios, is used in several places where total silence is clearly not implied. You can check out verse 2 of what we just talked about, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, 1 Peter 3.4. Instead, the term implies a peacefulness or stillness or calmness. In that time, religious expressions could be loud, showy, and hysterical. This is exactly what Paul wishes to avoid. Perhaps the most important context to understand is that of verses 9 and 10, where Paul encouraged women not to dress in flashy, showy ways. Instead, they were to dress modestly. This verse presents the same basic principle as applied to actions rather than clothes. The goal is peacefulness and self-control. The idea of submissiveness as used here is also easily misunderstood. In Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to 33, Paul used the analogy of Christ and the church along with husband and wife in marriage. Mutual submission or service to one another was encouraged. Paul emphasized a woman's submissiveness in this verse, but also teaches men to do the same toward their wives elsewhere. Next up, verse 12. It says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. The question is this. This is yet another verse that, without the proper context, can be misinterpreted. What is Paul's perspective here in this verse? This verse certainly has caused and still causes disagreement among people today, especially in the church. Some contend that since there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, but all are one in Christ, that's the Galatians 3.28 reference, women are free to pursue any field of ministry open to men. Others hold that verse 12 still applies today since the basis for Paul's command is not cultural, but universal, being rooted in the order of creation. The statement, I do not let, is part of a series of present tense commands in this chapter. Remember in verse 1, Paul said, I urge. Then in verses 8 and 9, we just read them, I want, he said. Unfortunately, the translation reads as if Paul wrote, I never permit a woman to teach. Also, the grammatical order in Greek for this phrase carries less force than the English one, to teach a woman I am not allowing, in other words, and completes the thought about attentive learning in verse 11. The women in the Ephesian church were allowed to learn, but not to teach men. Given the tension between the influx and recognition of women as fellow heirs in Christ within the church on the one hand, and the serious problems being caused by the false teachers on the other, Paul was affirming one right, to learn and listen quietly, while withholding another right, to teach, because of the condition of the church at the time. They did not need more teachers there in Ephesus. Rather, they all needed to return to the foundational truths of the gospel. Some interpret this passage to mean that women should never teach in the assembled church. However, other passages point out that Paul allowed women to teach. Paul's commended co-worker Priscilla taught Apollos the great preacher, Acts 18, verses 24 to 26. In addition, Paul frequently mentioned other women who held positions of responsibility in the church. Phoebe worked in the church, Romans 16.1. Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, they were also the Lord's workers, Romans 16 again, verses 6 and 12. And the same was true with Euodia and Syntyche, Philippians 4.2. More likely, Paul restrained the Ephesian women from teaching because they didn't yet have enough knowledge or experience. As I've already shared, the Ephesian church had a particular problem with false teachers. 
both Timothy's presence and Paul's letters were efforts to correct that problem. Evidently, the women were especially susceptible to the false teachings because they did not yet have enough biblical knowledge to discern the truth. Paul may have been countering the false teachers urging that women should claim a place of equality for prominence in the church. Because these women were new converts, they did not yet have the necessary experience, knowledge, or Christian maturity to teach those who already had extensive scriptural education. Paul was telling Timothy not to put anyone, in this case women, into a position of leadership who was not yet mature in the faith. This deeper principle applies to churches today. In fact, we're going to talk more about leadership qualifications, particularly eldership, next week. The expression have authority in this verse Found only here in the New Testament, it implies a domineering, forceful attitude, or in other words, an abuse of authority. Of course, no one should exercise abuse of authority over anyone, anytime. The danger Paul was counteracting included a competitive struggle for power within the church as women took their rightful place. But conversely, Paul nowhere teaches male authority over women expressed in harsh domination. Paul's instruction to the women of Ephesus displayed his missionary strategy. Because his desire was to teach the people of Ephesus with the gospel, he called for moderation and restraint against the potential misuse of freedom. Both Jews and Greeks in Ephesus would be scandalized by women usurping authority over men. This would have created confusion and resentment among the non-believers whom the Ephesian Christians were trying to reach. So Paul was giving a local strategy of restraint, not issuing unchanging rules of organization. Remember, the quality of worth between the sexes was a completely foreign concept in both Hebrew and Roman cultures. It was not expected, nor was it offered. The quality given by Christ was radical. Next, verse 13, it reads, For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. Here's the question. This verse states the basis of Paul's teaching about women in the church. Can you explain? Here Paul talks about male and female roles within the church. Some scholars see these verses about Adam and Eve as an illustration of what was happening in the Ephesian church. Just as Eve was deceived in the Garden of Eden, so the women in the church were being deceived by false teachers. Just as Adam was the first human created by God, so the men in the church of Ephesus should be the first to speak and teach because they had more training. Eve should have turned to Adam for advice about Satan's words to her because Adam had more experience with God's instruction. It was also necessary to simplify the task of weeding out the false teachers, also men, who were destroying the church from within. This view then stresses that Paul's teaching here is not universal, rather it applies to the churches with similar problems. Yet other scholars contend that the principles Paul pointed out are based on God's design for his created order. God established these roles to maintain harmony in both the family and the church. God assigned roles and responsibilities in order for his created world to function smoothly. Although there must be lines of authority, my friends, even in marriage, there should be no lines of superiority. God created men and women with unique and complementary characteristics. We must not let the issue of authority and submission become a wedge to destroy what can be an excellent working relationship with men and women using their varied gifts and abilities to accomplish God's work. Next up, verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. Here's the question. It might appear to some that Paul was giving Adam a pass in this verse and shifting the responsibility of sin entering the garden on Eve. What do you think? Paul was definitely not excusing Adam for his part in the fall at all. On the contrary, in his letter to the Romans, 
Paul placed the primary blame for humanity's sinful nature on Adam. Eve had not been told directly by God about the trees. Adam had instructed her. In turn, God instructed Adam about the trees before Eve was created. For Eve, the struggle was over whether to submit to Adam's command or to the serpent's words that seemed to offer her knowledge and understanding. But when Adam ate of the fruit, he directly disobeyed God. He was not deceived. He sinned outright. By then, however, Eve had already sinned. That said, don't take this as proof that women are more gullible than men. In Ephesus, due to the pervasiveness of the male false teachers, some women were gullible. Paul didn't use this verse to say women were easily deceived, but to point out that Eve should have submitted to Adam in her particular situation. And now here's our last verse for today. Verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Our final question today is this. What does Paul mean that women will be saved through childbearing? This verse, as many of the others, has often been confusing to readers. This is not surprising since it's often debated among translators. The Greek of this passage does not provide explicit clarity as to what Paul means by these phrases. There are several ways in which this first statement about being saved through childbearing can be interpreted, and a few which are clearly not part of Paul's intent here. Let me try to break them apart for you. One interpretation is that the childbearing here refers to the birth of Jesus Christ. Women and men are saved spiritually because of the most important birth, that of Christ himself. This argument is based on the very obscure reference to Christ and his birth. It would be unlikely for Paul to be so indirect. A second interpretation is that man sinned, so men were condemned to painful labor. Women also sinned, so women were condemned to pain and childbearing. Pain caused a serious complication, but childbearing was not the curse. Both men and women, however, can be saved through trusting Christ and obeying him. Although this is true, it does not seem as forceful in light of the context. A third interpretation is that from the lessons learned through the trials of childbearing, women can develop qualities that teach them about love, trust, submission, and service. Although this is true, it hardly seems to be the main point. The fourth interpretation says that women who fulfill their God-given roles of childbearing and child-rearing are demonstrating true commitment and obedience to Christ. One of the most important roles for a wife and mother is to care for her family. This last interpretation actually seems to be the most legitimate in light of the larger context and also referenced in chapter 5, verse 3 to 15, which we'll get to in a few weeks. The women in Ephesus were abandoning their God-given purpose because of the false teachers. So Paul was telling them that caring for their families or remarrying if they were younger widows was one way for them to remain effective and to live faithful lives of service. By means of bearing children, raising their children, and fulfilling their design, women would be saved from the evils of the Ephesian society and maintain a pure testimony to the Lordship of Christ. Paul placed before the women of Ephesus the goal to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of today's study of 1 Timothy chapter 2. This has certainly been a very deep and difficult journey as we've talked about Paul's guidelines for prayer and instructions for women in worship and leadership in the church. I believe that through all of our discussion, the bottom line was this. Paul wanted Christian men to pursue holiness and Christian women to conduct themselves appropriately in church. Next time, we're going to be studying 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 to 18, and we're going to talk more about leaders in the church and what it is to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. I hope that this has been a blessing for you today. I am so grateful you were with me. Thanks for taking time. 
I hope that you have an amazing rest of your day and week. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.